You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Good morning, church. My name is Drew Howard. I serve here with Hope Kids and Hope College. You can go ahead and stand up for today's reading. Today we're in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Let's jump right into our study this morning. You say, Mark, we are supposed to be in the book of Judges. We wanted to hear about Samson again. Samson will wait uh, for a week or so. Every year in the month of February, right around or on our anniversary date of Planting Hope, that we talk about vision. We talk about what hope is committed to. And hope is committed to, as Travis said earlier, that we are committed to people becoming and belonging through loving God, loving others, and making disciples. And you say, but wait a minute, I, maybe I've come to the wrong Sunday. I've attended the wrong Sunday because you're going to give a recap of Hope Fellowship and its history, and that's not what I'm going to do at all. In fact, I do want to talk about the church, and I want to start in about 313 AD. Now you know it's going to be long, right? It's going to take us a little while to get there, but just hang on, it's not going to be as well. But when we hear this statement, people becoming and belonging through loving God, others, and making disciples, then what we realize is it's how we define church. It is, but it's not something that we just pulled from an idea or a random thought, but it's actually derived from what I call the New Testament church instruction manual. You say, Mark, I didn't realize there was an instruction manual in the Bible. Oh, it's there. We're going to talk about it in just a moment as well. But I want to talk about the church, the big C, the body of Christ with you for a little while today as we kind of lay some context and groundwork for what we're going to talk about this morning. And to have that context, then we have to go back to 313 AD. You said, well, what's so uh, absolutely important about that date? Well, I will tell you in a moment. But let me start with a question. It does have bearing on what we are going to talk about, so it's not random. So the question would be, if you were to be... If you were free to do anything that you wanted, what would you do? It's a big question, right? If you were free to do anything that you wanted, what would you do? So you've greeted the person around you. Could you turn to them and ask them this question? If you were free to do anything that you wanted, what would you do? Ask the person next to you that for a moment. Do you mind? So Pastor Nathan, I'm going to rat him out again, right? So he told me after service that someone asked him that, and he heard all kinds of different answers. His answer was that he would rob a bank. I, I don't know. Is this the kind of people we have on staff? It's very interesting. As long as he ties on it, we're good. Okay, moving along, right? Just teasing. That's a joke, right? But he did say that. Or he said he did. Right? So, you know, you know when I... 
when I think about this question, I wrote some things down. That I thought you might say, uh, some of you might have said travel, right? Perhaps. Some of, did anybody in the room say that you wanted to skydive? Anybody? Raise your hand. Anyone in the room? There was a bunch of people in first service that had done it. Nobody. nobody. Wow, that's amazing. Has anybody been skydiving? Raise your hand. Anybody in here? Well, we have one in the back. Two, three, four, five, six. Oh, a few of you. Wow. Okay, those of you who are sitting next to those folks, slide away, okay? Because that just doesn't make sense, right? You jump out of a perfectly good airplane. I, I just can't figure that one out, correct? So maybe some of you said that, wait a minute, that you wanted freedom to just say whatever you wanted to say. You've been holding it in so long. You just want to say whatever you want to say. Then feel free to turn to the person next to you. No, you don't want to do that. That would probably go very bad this morning as well. Yes, You see, here's the thought. The early church in 313 AD, the emperor of Rome, Constantine, he gave the church the liberty to assemble publicly during that time is what he did. You see, the church had been under this Roman persecution since Pentecost 31 AD. So you can see how long the church had been under persecution. They had to meet secretly and, and so now that Constantine has somewhat um, legalized Christianity, or that at least that's what he thought, I believe, that they, could, they have this freedom to assemble publicly. So it brings me to another question, and that is, what did they do with this newfound freedom? What did they do with it? Well, I, I kind of put myself in, in their shoes, you know. If, if I had been under persecution for so long, and now I could meet publicly, then I would go back to the instruction manual, and I would see what God wants the church to look like and how he wants the church to flourish. The instruction manual is the text that Drew read to us earlier, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And, and you heard those words. They are such powerful words. In fact, we're going to read some of them as our benediction this morning as well. But when you read those words about how they were to meet and how they were to care for and love for one another, how they sold their proceeds and, and sold their belongings and the proceeds went to meeting each other's needs, how they broke bread together, they served communion together daily, how they met in the temple for worship and to hear the Torah being read. And God added to the church every day those who were going to be saved. That's sort of my uh, you know, uh, condensed version of all of that as well. So what did the church do in the newfound freedom? They rewrote the instructions. Wow. They rewrote the instructions is exactly what they did. They took what was modeled for them in Acts chapter 2 and beginning at verse 42, which we call that of the fellowship of believers is what it's known to be called. But yet they took that example that was modeled for them and they rewrote the instructions. And in this new freedom of the church to meet publicly, they moved from a movement that was centered upon Jesus and the resurrection And they moved into what we know to be like a location or an institution. They moved away from the four steps that we find in this instruction manual for the church in Acts chapter 2. They're very simple. They're on the screen behind me. Step number one was to learn is what we're doing this morning together. It is to learn. It's what you do in Bible studies and small group settings and other moments. They, They learn together. Step two was they cared for one another. That they cared for each other. That doesn't mean that they were just fond of each other, but they provided for one and they cared for each other. Number three was that they lived in community, in fellowship with one another. They realized that God created us to live in community and not to walk this walk alone. And the fourth was this, that they realized that that step was worship. They came together and they worshiped together dynamically. So how difficult 
my thought is this. How difficult is it to follow directions? Yeah. So let me tell you what Reba and I did this week. So Reba and I embarked on this project this week. We did. And we embarked on this project to build this thing, right? And this is a Playmobil Princess Castle. And this is for our granddaughters. In fact, it's for all of them. But the two youngest one, Abigail and, and Sailor Gray. Um, Emma is 12. So if Emma is watching this today or sees this, Emma, I am not in any way insinuating that at 12 years old, you would play with this, okay? So just go on the record as saying that as well. And at Garrett, our one-year-old grandson, if he got a hold of this thing, then it would just be like one of those Japanese movies with Godzilla. It would be, and there would be pieces everywhere because that's kind of the stage he's at, right? And he's Garrett and he's a one-man wrecking crew is, is what he is. So Reba and I, Embarked on a journey together this week. Yes. This thing has 644 pieces. That doesn't include the fasteners that hold it all together. Listen, they even put that on the box right there. So they could tell you somewhere. There it is. So they could tell you how big of a crazy person you are to embark on this journey. It is right there. They warn you as well. 644 pieces. 28 plus pages of instruction with no words. It's only pictures. There are no words in the instructions at all. It took Reba and I together as a team nine hours to assemble this thing. Isn't that crazy? Yes, it absolutely is. Yes, I I know. It came in, the parts came in bags, and the bags did not correlate any way what the ports, parts were. They don't even go together. It's like somebody randomly put them in package just so that this could be some kind of sanctification test for Reba and I. I don't know, right? Reba called it throughout these three afternoons, one afternoon till midnight as well, nine hours. She called this a labor of love. I called it many other things. I did, right? And I have repented. Move on, okay? So that's it, right? Yes. But here's what we did. We were careful to follow the instructions. That's the point. It's the point. The early church instructions were extremely simple. Learn, love, community, and worship. It was all about well, what we find in our mission statement, people becoming and belonging through loving God and loving others. It was all compressed in that thing about loving God and loving others. And I think in this building, so many times, you and I talk a great deal about this relationship that we have with God and how we, how we love God absolutely. And, and that's a huge part. But what about that part of loving others? It's big. It is. You say, oh, Mark, I realize what you're doing now, that this is this Sunday before Valentine's Day, right? So you're going to talk on love, and because it's Valentine's Day, this is your Valentine's Day sermon. If I ever preach to you a Valentine's Day sermon, you need to have me tested. Something has gone wrong with me. I'm just going to tell you that, right? But, but, and, and then also, there's some guy sitting out here that they just said to themselves, oh, boy, I didn't even realize next week was Valentine. You can thank me later, right? That's the word of the Lord. So there you go, right, to you today. And, and I just saved you. But, but when I looked at this and, and I think about these, this early church and what's going on, what I realized is that, and we've said this many times before as well, that our relationship, our spiritual relationship is two-dimensional, right? 
We've talked about this. You have this horizontal relationship that you and I have with one another. And, that's, and there's many layers, and it's very complex because there's so many of us as well. So we have this horizontal relationship with, you, with each other. And that other dimension is our vertical relationship with, with one God. Yes, three in one, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but yet is a singular relationship with God itself. So both are challenging at times in our lives. There is no doubt they are challenging. But I, I had a question then, then. Then what is the most challenging? Is it our vertical relationship with God or our horizontal relationship with, with each other? And, and I had to answer this very honestly. And I said to myself, for me, then it's, it's horizontal relationships. Those are the more challenging as well. Because when I look at the text, this, this instruction manual, it's in Acts chapter 2. What I realized, it's so much about how we care for one another and how we love each other, how we provide for each other, how that that we accept one another as well. It's so powerful that I wanted to talk to you for a while today about this part about loving others because I think it's a powerful thing. In fact, it is so much a part of our walk with God that Jesus gave us some amazing words in John chapter 13 and verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also are to love one another. Well, maybe you've been in church for a little while, perhaps, or not, and you've heard things. Well, Mark, that doesn't really say a whole lot to me. But look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. Wow. I can read verse 34, and it is powerful words from our Lord and Savior. Yes, for sure. But when he sort of frames it with verse 35, and he says perhaps one of the greatest ways that people will know that you're my disciples, that they will know that you are Christian, that they will know that you follow me, is not the size of your Bible or the translation of your Bible. It's not that at all, or how much theology you know and how much you do not know. It's not those things at all. He brings it very simple for you and I, and he says that they will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. It's challenging. A lot more than nine hours. It's a lifetime challenge as well. It's a lot more than 644 pieces as well. It's a lot more than a pink princess castle. But, and here's another point, have you ever given the thought that the author of the instructions has carefully thought out every step? That's huge. That God has thought out every step. That he's already seen the beauty of the finished product. God already knows what this is going to look like as you and I live in community. And as we love one another, he knows the beauty of that. He understands what that looks like. So that the pain of the process is worth it. Understand that when we trust the creator. That the pain of the process of me loving you and you loving me is absolutely worth it. Understand that the beauty of loving God and others will, as we follow this instruction of the creator, makes him known. Wow. Amazing. You want to see what the finished product looks like? I brought a picture. There it is. See that? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Come on. I mean, give Reba applause. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Complete with the princess up there on the balcony behind the roses as well. And one down below. And um, I think Reba has already, since we put this together, added how many more pieces to it? Another, let's just don't even think about it. Okay, moving on. Okay, that's it. Yes. Uh, but but here is, 
thought I, I wanted to talk to you then about this point of loving others, specifically in line of the instruction manual in Acts chapter two. And so I thought, so where do we start? If we're gonna talk about love, then I remembered, oh, there's a great chapter in the book of Romans chapter 12. That's where we're gonna talk this morning. So if you have your Bibles, your devices, if you wanna follow along, it's Romans chapter 12. But I wanna begin with verse nine. I'm gonna come back to one in just a moment. But here's what Paul says as he starts out in Romans chapter 12 and verse nine. He says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. So can I break it down sort of in my understanding of what he's saying? That, that, that I am to love you, I am to love you not just because Jesus commands me to. Do you understand that? That I am not to just love you because Jesus commands me to love you. It goes back to the old saying that you perhaps you've heard in, in your lifetime at some point. Listen, I, I, don't, I don't have to like you, but, but I do have to love you because God tells me I have to do that. Oh, that, that's not genuine love. Let's just call that what it is, okay? That's very much a hypocritical type of love is what that is. So that's not what Paul is teaching us. But in order for you and I to not become overwhelmed in this thought of genuine love, then I have to give you some context and how this happens in our life. So it's Romans chapter 12, verse one. This is powerful. I'm so excited about this. This is good. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Underline that part, by the mercies of God. It's the process that enables you and I to walk in everything Paul is about to write after verse one. So if you've missed verse one, you're going to find yourself overwhelmed and disillusioned with this all this talk about how we love and care for one another. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is he saying to you and I? That God's mercies have a persuasive power in our lives for you and I to surrender our will to God. When we think about how merciful and powerful and graceful and gracious God has been to you and I through the gospel and the redemptive work of the cross, it is absolutely the catalyst that causes you and I to submit our human will to him in this area of loving one another. That recalling the mercies of God causes us to offer ourselves as a sacrifice, to surrender my will to God's will for my life. And that is for me to love you and to care for you and and to follow the instruction manual. He says, therefore, consider the mercies of God. It's how I live and how I love and how I realize my care and love for you in the clear view of that of the mercies of God. Because apart from me considering the mercies of God, when I try to love you, then my love at best is gonna be extremely shallow outside of that. Because let's face it, some of us in this room are difficult to love. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I don't know. Was that amen in agreement with me or is that an amen saying that was me? I'm not, I don't know. But whatever it is, you know, wear it. But, but realize that, that that is true. That because this is such a difficult thing because it is a surrendering of our will. How do I surrender my will to God as a sacrifice? 
a living sacrifice. There's only one way that that is possible. And I do that in light of and in consideration of the mercy and the gospel of the grace that God has shown toward me. There is no other way because if you try to do it in your own will and under your own volition and your own power, it will be nothing but very shallow love. So let me give you three steps in the manual today. The first is this. And they all start with this same thing according to the instruction manual. So here it is. According to the instruction manual. Because I'm all into instruction manuals right now because of after this beast right here. Yeah. And you're wondering why the box is all torn up and tattered like it is. And um, it's not because I took it out in a box. Okay, that's not it at all. That's the way it actually came to us. But yet, according to the instruction manual, my love must be genuine. I have to talk about that a little more because there's more that he says. Verse nine, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. I have to go back and say, as I started before or said earlier, I'm not loving you just because God commands me to love you. That's not it at all. No, what makes my love the real thing is I I put in the notes and I think it's on your screen as well. It's not through my ability at all but that my love is real in the shadow of God's love and mercy for me. That my love for you in those moments when it is a struggle, in those moments when you have harmed me or I have harmed you, my love grows out of that firm, fertile soil at the foot of the cross, simply drenched in God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. So when I look at that and I realize the mercy and the grace that God has lavished upon me, then what right do I have to hate anything but evil itself? How can I live in the shadow of the cross and knowingly mistreat you and say that I don't love you or I won't care for you when I know how that you are wonderfully and fearfully made in the image of God and that God loved you so much that yet he paid the price for your redemption with his only son. Now, before you allow the dump truck of guilt to back up to your life, maybe accept some UPS boxes of conviction though. I think that is fair here, isn't it? Sure, to challenge us. But some translations say that we should love without hypocrisy. That we choose to act in love in the shadow of God's mercy and love for us. It's powerful. But then he says something else. He says in verse 12, the second part, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good is is what he says. I love all this because it's written in context of relationships that loving each other can be challenging in the process of loving you. Now listen, and wanting the best for your life, it's very easy for me to overlook the evil in your life. Tim Keller says, and I, I quote him This morning that when we love someone, it distorts our view of good and evil. He uses the word abhor. It's a word that we don't use a whole lot, I guess, in our daily conversation. It's a word that means horrified, that I should be horrified by what God calls evil. 
I should. It should horrify me. Then he says this term, hold fast. It is the same word for glued, that I should be glued to what God calls good, that I hate evil, not people, so that in my love for and care for you in this community, that I never stand back with my hands in my pockets as God never stands back with his hands in his robes and watches his children self-disintegrate. I should never do that because love calls me to intervene and to step in your life even when it's risky for me. And it can be risky at times. There's no doubt about that. It can. I've, I've, I've said this to you many times. You know, just humor me to hear it one more time maybe. Nah, I'll say it again at some point in the future. But when my boys were younger and, and they were of the dating age, Chad and Brad, that when they would come home on a Friday night or a Saturday night after a date or out with the guys or whoever or friends, that I would always meet them in the door. I'd follow them to this room and I would always ask them the question, was your conduct pleasing to God tonight? I would always ask them that, that question. Did it make the meetings very comfortable? No, it did not make them comfortable at all. No, they could probably tell you that they've suffered some trauma from those meetings with me at some point. Now, you know, kind of deal. But it was my place as their father who loves them. It was my place to have those conversations with them, not just as their father who loves them, but as one who that loves them in Christ, that there has to be some tenacity to our love and our horizontal relationships with one another. There has to be. It's why Jesus said those words to you and I in John chapter 13. By this kind of, by this kind of love, people will know that you're my disciples. Why? Because that of Jesus never stood back from us. He never detached himself from us. When our life was a mess, he never did. He never watched us just go down all alone. What did he do? He intervened. He stepped in. He was tenacious with his love for you and I. We cannot let our brothers and sisters do the same. And we approach them in light of considering the mercies of God. That's the way that Paul starts his text out. So let me go to step two. According to the instruction manual, we should honor one another. That we should honor one another. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I think, do we really understand what Paul is saying? Because here's what he's saying, that we're recognizing, but not just recognizing, but we're responding to this intrinsic value of all those created in the image of God, that we value everyone in this room. We value everyone outside of this room as well. That's important. And I think we have to, we have to pull into the parking space for a moment. We have to sit here. We have to talk about this. That how we outdo one another in showing honor. Because what honor means is value. And, and what I realize is that that I have never been given the latitude by God to determine your value. Do you know why I've never been given that ability to do that? Because your value has already been set. Realize that. That your value has already been set by God himself. 
at the very moment that he sent Jesus, the incarnate Christ, into the world, and he wrapped himself in flesh so he would feel everything that you and I feel. He would understand every brokenness that you and I feel in this world, that he would die a criminal's death when he was a person without any sin in his life. Understand that. And at that very moment, God determined your worth. So how can we look at anybody in any way and try to say they're worth this or they're not worth that? It is way out of our league. Do you understand that? Well, I think that's something that we have to wrap our mind around in our world that's so divided. Let me, let me talk about the early church for a moment because theologians and historians tell us that there's this dynamic about the early church that we overlook at times. And it was the, the diversity of the, the early church and the culture that they were surrounded was so divided as well. And if you look at that, the culture around the early church was divided by economics. That if you were born into poverty, you most likely stayed in poverty the rest of your life is the way it worked. There were stations of life. If you were a fisherman, you probably fished the rest of your life. I think it was why it's so intriguing to the disciples, when Jesus, our future disciples, when Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. There's a caste system about the family you're born in. That Jews was about the tribe that they were a member of. There's this ethnicity division about Jews and Gentiles. So when you look at the early church, the only place that God's creation gathered together, both poor and immigrant and that of rich and whatever background, people of diverse ethnicity, the only place that they could ever gather together and be honored equally was the church. Because Christ was a defining marker of their life. Wow. Man. I think it gives us this greater appreciation for the church and, and, and for us coming together and, and the body of Christ. It is absolutely amazing how God works through this. And he works his greatest works in this area of how you and I love and care for each other and how we value one another. But I do realize that we're living in a repeat of history. It's where we are today. We're surrounded by division and prejudice and confusion. Yes, that people are defining themselves, even Christians, by inappropriate markers. Not Christ, but other things. Mark, be careful. You're going to get in trouble. Oh, I... I probably want to cause some trouble right now. I really do. I feel that because I think we as Christians define ourselves as Republicans or, or Democrats or independents or nonpartisan. And I'm not sure what necessarily that is. And Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and, and Pentecostals and conservatives and liberals and Catholics and evangelicals and, and that of wealthy or not so wealthy. You say, Mark, I'm not even not so wealthy. I'm broke. The broke then. Yeah. By skin color. All those kinds of things. And as the church gathered together in this instruction manual, this model that God gave us in Acts chapter 2, it was the place where this intrinsic value that God placed upon everybody was recognized and it was honored and everyone was valued equally. How does that happen? Well, the church was just full of good people. No, that is not true. The church was much like this church today. It's just a room full of messed up people, right? Yes. Come on, you know, right? Isn't that true? Yes, yes. And so it's, 
It it is much like we are today. How does that happen in a room full of mixed up people? How does that take place in the early church as well? Because it simply realized when they consider the mercies of God in their life, it is the fuel. When you go to the cross and you stand before the cross and you realize what God has done for you, then it's very difficult for you to devalue your brother and your sister. have to sit for a moment. Give me a second. So this is difficult for us beyond our human will. So, so here's what Paul says in verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. No. He said, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. But he goes on to say, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation because this is going to be difficult for you. It's not going to be, you know, a cakewalk, so to speak. Be constant in prayer because this is the divine work of God in our lives. Third step. Here it is. According to the instruction manual, my love for others will be realized through actions. Oh, it's just very simple how we've broken this down. 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So I have to point some things out for a moment. The first is this, this is both about feelings and actions. Understand that, that we are to share the tangible things that God has given us to care for one another and care for people in the world. Absolutely, that this is about how God uses our hands and feet, but not just our hands and feet. No. Because what I realize is that you cannot divorce loving other people and opening your heart to them and their world and their situation. He uses the word hospitality for a reason. Very intent in the words that he chose because it's the very same words that Jesus uses in Matthew 25 where he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. That's hospitality, same word. You see, it's, it's not just a love and care for those that are known, but it's a love and care for those that are unknown, for those that are strangers, for those that are very different than we are. It's not just about you and I giving. It's not just about you and I writing a check. It's not just about you and I somehow, can I say this and you still love me? Well, yeah, I almost said you have to because God, you know, God says that. But no, it's about you writing a check so you buy off your conscience. Now you wish you were back in Judges, don't you? With people driving stakes in the beds and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. But that's what it is. It's the posture of my heart while I'm meeting the needs of others. It's just as important. Understand that. Verse 14. Let me show you this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That I'm not just meeting a spiritual need is what Paul is saying. No, I'm understanding the heart of those that are in need. That I take them a meal, but I open my heart to their world. I have a conversation with them. I want to know them. I want to feel what they're feeling in this life. You say, Mark, there's a lot of feeling going on in this sermon, and it makes me feel extremely uncomfortable because it's a little too feely for me. Understand this. It involves both in our life. It reminds me of a story that Jesus told in the book of Luke, chapter 10. 
Jesus says, but a Samaritan is the story of what we call the good Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, the man who had been beaten by the robbers left by the roadside, he had compassion. Powerful word. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, poured oil on oil and wine. And then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Jesus uses this word compassion intentionally because it is a word that far exceeds surface benevolence. Listen, it's far beyond surface benevolence. He's intentional. This is more than, but not to exclude bandaging the wounds or paying for three, room, three nights of the holiday end for them. It's, it's, it, it's, it's more than that. It's a call to place ourselves in their story. It's the very same word for compassion that Jesus uses as he faces the 5,000 who have heard him teach and they are hungry. And it's the words that says that Jesus was moved with compassion, meaning that he felt their very hunger. You know how hungry some of you are getting right now, thinking about lunch, right? You're thinking about it, yeah? Multiply that feeling that you have by at least a minimum of 5,000. Jesus felt their hunger. His heart goes to where they are. Have you, and, and I have asked this in my own life, that have you taken the time to know those around you that you care for? Have you taken time to know them? to understand their world? Have you been moved by their circumstances? Mark, how do you do all of this? It's why Paul says that I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. It's the fuel in which we love by is what it is. So verse 16, and this is where we end this morning. Verse 16 Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I underline the first part of verse 17. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy, look at this. This is wild, isn't it? Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I like that part, don't you? Yeah? Yeah. I always love that when preachers were to read that growing up. I really didn't know what it meant, but I liked it. it. Gave me some satisfaction, but it was misplaced satisfaction. 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
so I asked myself a question as I began to read commentators and theologians on their take on these verses. And so many of them pose the question and not exactly like this, but a summation of those questions would be, is it possible for us to lose while while we're winning? Is it possible for us to lose while we're winning? Because Paul talks about something so practical. He says, repay evil with evil. Evil. To hate or mistreat or not love those that have harmed is a win for evil. It's a loss for good. Because in the middle of what we think is winning because we feel justified because we've been wronged and we've been harmed. So in the, mean, in the middle of what we think is winning because of our justification, we're actually losing. It feels so much like winning at that moment, doesn't it? It really does. But it's not a win at all. So he said, if I feed my enemy and if I give them water when thirsty, then I'm gonna heap some burning coals on their head. This is, in my opinion, one of the more powerful verses that you're ever gonna find in scripture. But I think it's so misunderstood because it's not punitive at all. That's not the heart of this text at all. It's not punishment, which kind of gives us the you know, feeling of uh, satisfaction that we've somehow heaped fire on those that have harmed us. But here's what this is. It's that my care and love for them, my feeding them and giving them drink, my care and love for them, when undeserved is one of the most powerful ways to reveal to them the gospel because it is the story of the gospel. It is the story, the model of what Christ did for you and I, who you and I deserve nothing. We didn't deserve life that what we deserved was even greater than a burning coal. We deserved death. But what did God do through his son, Jesus? He gave us everything. That's the gospel. No wonder Jesus says, if you have love one for another, then they will know that you're my disciple. You see how just an understanding of that verse changes it all for us. And the only way that this is possible in our weak, frail, faulty, messed up human state that we live in is that this is all done through the direct view of God's mercy for our lives. It is the gospel power of God and his salvation, the gospel that enables me to love you.
anything outside of that is probably going to be very short-lived and very shallow. So we are becoming and belonging. We're on a journey, as Travis says, and we're on the dirt road of sanctification. Some of you says, Mark, it feels more like a path, right? Is it, than, than a road. And the instruction manual guides us through the steps of loving God and loving others. It's a journey that there are going to be those days when we get it right. And then there are going to be those other days. But both days are covered in the grace of and the mercy of God, which is the catalyst, the fuel for us to love one another so that Christ may be known. But Mark, I don't, I don't have it all together. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with my own sins and my own issues. Here's what I would say to you this morning in light of what we just read then even love others in the process of your own repentance. It doesn't disqualify you. You know why? Because it's not based on your faithfulness anyway. It's based upon God's. And his great love for you. The creator, he wrote the instruction manual. Every step has been perfectly laid out. He knows the beauty of the finished product. The steps are difficult. But the result of this far outweighs the pain of following the instructions. So that moment when Reba and I see our granddaughters playing with the Playmobil Princess Castle and we're fighting with our one-year-old Garrett to keep him away from destroying it and Emma's denying at 12 years old that she's even interested. It's a sight that is so beautiful and so fulfilling so precious and nothing can take that from us God sees that in you God sees that in this room that if we will just follow the instructions that we are becoming and belonging through loving God loving others and making disciples so can I pray with you for a moment? If you would take a posture of prayer, however that looks for you, and let me pray with you and pray over you. But let me say this to you while you're sitting there in a reflective moment. Let this be a moment with God today that there's no pretense in your life. Don't start out the conversation with God. Well, God, you know, I really don't have any hard feelings toward anyone. And and God, I really don't ever deal with this anyway. And I just love everybody. Stop. 
open your heart to your God who already knows everything that is in it. Invite him today as if somehow he needed an invitation, but yet invite him because he's that loving of a God that he wants you to take that step. Invite him into the rooms of your heart that you've closed off. Maybe for some of you, in some of those rooms, there's hate and there's bitterness and there's unforgiveness. For some of you, it's confusion because you don't understand why you've been treated like this. So let God in. Let him in. Open your hearts. So, Father, in our prayer, God, you have challenged us. You have challenged us today, Lord, from your word. That, God, we realize this two-dimensional existence of ours in this world. And, God, our vertical relationship with you, but our horizontal relationship with each other. So, God... We struggle at times with loving each other. But we struggle with that because we are doing that out of our own will and our own ability. But God, may we go back to what Paul is teaching us today as you have moved upon him with these words. And that God, we are, we are considering your mercies in our life. And that changes everything. That changes everything, Father. So speak to us today. Convict us of our sins. God, walk us through these steps today of surrendering our will to you. But let this day be a transformational moment in our lives. So Father, work in our lives powerfully today. Thank you, Lord. We give you praise as we open our hearts and our minds to you today. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week.